Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. If you build it, they will come. It takes one bird stone to pilgrim heart. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. That was a song from Kayla Farnham called If You Build It, Hemingway's House. Kayla is Connecticut State Troubadour, and we are one of the few states that has a state troubadour who is an ambassador of music and song. Did you know we have one of those? The state troubadour is also tasked with promoting cultural literacy, creative arts, and wellness in the community. The performing arts took a massive hit during the pandemic, but most theaters have returned to a full season of in-person performances. And many performing arts spaces are also thinking critically about equity, diversity, and accessibility on and off the stage. Later, we'll check in with local theaters here in Connecticut and hear about what's on tap for the summer. But first, we're chatting with Kayla. Kayla, welcome to Where We Live. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Kayla, really love the song we just listened to. Can we, um, can you first describe you know, what your role looks like as the Connecticut State Troubadour? What exactly do you do? So the role of the State Troubadour um, is a role dedicated to advocating for and educating about and celebrating Connecticut arts and history and culture through song. It was a position that was originally created about 30 years ago in our state. Um, And it was based off of the traditional concept of a troubadour in medieval times. So the troubadour in medieval times would go around the kingdom singing the news of the day. And so we've tried to preserve this idea of sharing everything there is to share about Connecticut through song. I'm not gonna lie, I did kind of have a medieval sort of castle tour picture that went through my mind um, as we were preparing for the show and you having just mentioned that. Is this uncommon or is this a common position? I can't say I really have heard about this. It is incredibly uncommon as far as I know. I know there's perhaps a couple other states that have a state troubadour, but um, certainly not as common as, I guess, the the other role that we often hear about, which is the poet laureate. Mm. So I like to think of this as the musical poet laureate, and I would love to advocate for more states to introduce that. Well, you're hearing that first here. (laughs) Musical poet laureate, I really love that as well. It's really beautiful. And your musical journey started at a young age too and you actually received a classical education in music what was that what was that experience like for you and and the fact that you're here today as Connecticut's musical poet laureate it's been a long journey um I grew up surrounded by music both of my parents were performing musicians they were in a folk duo together so I was in a household full of every kind of instrument you could think of, guitars, mandolins, there was a Celtic harp, a piano, a banjo, harpsichord. Um, 
So I was just immersed in it and I fell in love with it right from the very beginning. Um, I studied classical piano from childhood all the way through to college. Um, and it was in my teens that I started to fall in love with singing and the process of songwriting. Um, I began getting involved in musical theater programs in my teens. So it it from there, it just kind of branched out into um, the songwriting and storytelling that I've come to love so much. And I really want to talk about sort of using music and songwriting as a source of healing, you know, an outlet of connecting with this community in a little bit. But I would love to sort of learn about your relationship with the state of Connecticut and how how its history and its stories have influenced you as an artist. Absolutely. So I was born and raised in Connecticut. I was born in Litchfield County. And we briefly moved out of the state before we came back to where I currently live in the northeastern corner of the state. So I affectionately refer to it as the quiet corner. Um, This is one of the most beautiful areas of the state, in my opinion. Um, But what I've really come to appreciate about the state of Connecticut is the incredible variety of arts and culture and nature all within such a small area. I've done quite a bit of traveling at this point as a performing songwriter, and I'm always happy to come home. I love to travel, but I'm happy to come home because there really is so much here for us um, that maybe we don't necessarily realize until we leave. Um, And as far as Connecticut history goes, there are just so many um, incredible people that have come out of the state of Connecticut. So that has really influenced my writing today. I'm working on a project to highlight the stories of trailblazers throughout history, especially female trailblazers or trailblazers from the state of Connecticut. So uh, some of those people have worked their way into my songwriting. And with what you said, I really I really feel that because I feel very similar in terms of coming here to Connecticut. It really, it shouldn't surprise me, but it really surprises me how much nature we have here, how much arts and culture we have here. And I'm on this ongoing journey of discovering more and all of it. And and with your your current project with you know, songs teaching or, or storytelling about trailblazers reminds me a little bit about like oral history. Like back in the day, that's how our histories are being told. Is that something that you want to do with, with your work, with your songs? Is that in the back of your mind when you're working on this project? Absolutely. I think there's so much that we can learn from history. Um, and by focusing on these these individuals who transformed our history and transformed our lives and we're still... Um, experiencing the benefits of that today, you know, it's not only can it help us to cultivate an experience of gratitude for where we are in this world, but also it can inspire us to go forward with our own dreams and go forward with our own goals to do good for our community. So I'm hoping that through highlighting these incredible stories from history, I can help to inspire the people around me and our youth today to go forward and and really, you know, believe in their ability to make a difference. 
And like you mentioned just now, too, you know, a lot of your songwriting is inspired by historical figures and different areas of history. Can you tell us about that and what Connecticut Trailblazers you've explored through songwriting and were there any surprises for you? Yeah, absolutely. So this is an ongoing process for me. Um, The project actually began with a trailblazer that isn't well-recognized in history. Um, So I just started with the story of a veteran um, who had shared his whole story with me one day, and he kindly gave me permission to incorporate this into my song. Um, But it was just an incredible story of somebody who had struggled through childhood and used that experience to go on to work in the service and make a difference in our world. So that was the foundation for the project. Since then, I have branched out to some better known historical figures. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is one of the inspirations for one of my songs, um, as well as Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, And with that song, um, not only was The book that she wrote, obviously groundbreaking in terms of racial justice, Um, but it was also incredible because she was a female author making an incredibly impactful statement at a time when women writers were rarely heard from. So she made a splash in multiple ways and really helped women on that path to start gaining a voice in our community. So those are a few that I've started with. Um, I'm still working on more to come. Well, I think with everything you just said, it's ongoing, but ongoing for a reason, because I I feel like it's so relevant, right, Uh, even today. And we heard a snippet of one of your songs called If You Build It, Hemingway's House, at the beginning of the show. Can you tell us about about the song? How did you come about with it? Yeah. um, So that song was inspired while I was down in Key West, Florida, And I had an opportunity to visit the Hemingway home in Key West. Um, And this actually does tie into my Connecticut project because the individual who built the Hemingway house actually is originally from the state of Connecticut. Um, But the incredible thing about this home is that Hemingway wrote 70% of his works at this house. He said he found a type of inspiration there that he couldn't find anywhere else. So it brought to mind this idea that a place that we build can be a source of inspiration and a source of creation, and that what we build, create there, might not have existed without the place um, existing, you know. So this idea that we can build something that will then be a source of creativity and growth. And with creativity and growth, and you mentioned about gratitude, you know, having a feeling of gratitude through song. Uh, we've also talked about the connection between music and healing. You know, you studied musical, you music performance. You also studied mental health and human services, actually. So how did you draw the connection between the two? You know, what does that look like today? Because I think a lot of people do use music as a source of healing. Absolutely. For me, it began through my own personal experience with music. I found music to be an incredibly therapeutic process for me. Creating music, writing music was an incredible way to express myself and learn to understand my own story and find healing. It also was an incredible way to connect with my community 
Um, so I really grew an inner appreciation through my own relationship with music. And I've tried to take that and work it into what I offer to my community. Um, so some of the ways that I do that now are I offer songwriting coaching, you know, because songwriting can be an incredible way to empower us to reclaim our own stories or perhaps reimagine our stories, rewrite our stories. Um, it can be a way through creative storytelling to step into the shoes of another character and perhaps invite us to embody another experience. Um, I know you're talking to, um, going to be talking about theater later today, and I had a pretty strong background in theater. So this idea that we can step into a different experience through creative storytelling, um, that's definitely a big part of what I do. Um, and then music in general is just incredibly healing. It can have a calming effect on our our bodies and on our brain waves and help us to regulate emotions. So it is really therapeutic on a holistic level. And yes, we will be talking about theater in a little bit. And and we are, we also mentioned the pandemic has has really shifted how theater looks and also brought out a, a really big need for more mental health services and more community connection. And that's something that we saw in the theater, but also in music as well. So we only have about two minutes left here, but I do want to ask, you know, what does fostering community connection look like for you and your role, especially especially having gone through a pandemic? You know, it's been really interesting to try to make that transition. And I think the key for me has been learning to balance returning to normal with incorporating everything we experienced and learned through the pandemic. So a lot of the services that I offer now have a sort of hybrid element to it where I offer it in person, but I also might offer it virtually. Um, I have a songwriters meetup that I host monthly, and that's in person and virtual. I'm a teacher and I teach over Zoom sometimes. Um, performances are often live, live streams. But what I find in building community after the, the pandemic is that there is this incredible feeling of gratitude that was there before, but maybe not to the same degree, because we now have this appreciation for something that we had taken for granted our whole lives. And now having experienced its absence, it's even more sacred and special to be together in community with the arts. Absolutely. And I think a lot of us did find a lot of comf comfort with music because it translated, I think, fairly well during the pandemic or during the lockdown through Zoom and whatnot. So thank you so much, Kayla, for sharing your experiences with us. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to Kayla Farnham, who's our state troubadour. And coming up next, we're going to bring on some drama by talking about theater. The stage has gone through a lot of mayhem during the pandemic, and we'll talk about some of the creative endeavors that came out from it. And also a brand new take on an old Shakespearean classic, Macbeth. You can also join the drama, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking about the fact that here in Connecticut, we have a state troubadour who serves as an ambassador of music and song. And I think the performing stage is important to a lot of us. So we're raising the curtain on another kind of stage right now, the theater. Here to talk about how the pandemic has impacted the theater and how many performing arts spaces are thinking critically about equity, diversity, and accessibility on and off the stage is Jackie Hubbard. She's the artistic director of the Ivoryton Playhouse in Ivoryton, Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Jackie. Thank you for having me. So it's, it's a real pleasure to be here. And we are very happy to have you. And just a reminder for our listeners that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so, Jackie, we I think we're in a place where audiences are now more comfortable gathering again. So have you seen the theater change and evolve? It seems to be a really safe and fun place to be in again. Yes, um, I think what has definitely come to the surface for our theatre in particular is people are coming back, but they, when they come back, they want to feel uh, nurtured, cared for. They want to feel better when they leave than when they came in. So uh, it's really made us rethink our programming to make sure that whatever we do, if we give them uh, uh, challenging subject matter at all, we always have to make sure that the, um, that the play ends or the musical ends on a note of hope. Nobody wants to feel hopeless anymore. They want to come together to share an experience that makes them feel like a community. And I think... Oh, Jackie, do we lose you there? We might have lost Jackie for a second, but that's okay because right now I'm going to uh, have mother-daughter pair Laura and Kira Sheehan join us. They are performers with Capital Classics Theatre Company in Hartford. Laura and Kira, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Absolutely. And so I know Jackie only had a little time just now, but Laura, would love for you to respond real quickly with what she said. You know, I feel like the theme we're talking about here today seems to be community and and a shared experiences and now a message of hope. You know, what are your thoughts about that? Well, it's hard to justify with Macbeth on the on the onset, but it is actually a play that brings us to some point of potential hope, I would say, with our human behavior if we learn the lessons of the play. 
Um, one of the things that I personally have been grappling with throughout the pandemic and beyond, it's not just the pandemic, there's a lot of other social, economic, cultural issues that are very disturbing. And this is a play that I think brings them to the forefront in a way that makes us look at human behavior and look at the potential of corruption, that's both personal corruption and public corruption, and the effect it has on humanity, again, both personally and communally. Um, so it examines in a way that might be more difficult to go through, but Shakespeare does end it with the affirmation of goodness, we hope, right? Yeah, there's been some accountability for the corruption and the damage done. And in that, these days, I take hope. That's a good message to have, I think, right? And I, I feel like we, Shakespeare is so ubiquitous. I feel like there's a reason why we still read him and watch him. And I think ongoing performances, both on stage and on screen, we see adaptations all the time. And Kira would, would also love to know, you know, what do you think about the message of hope and, and sort of the, the relevance of still performing and reading Shakespeare today? Yeah, I think that, yeah, the, the message of Macbeth is hard sometimes to find hope in at a surface level. But if you look at each character's journey, um, they each grapple with hope and community in a way that I think is really reflective. And for me, diving into Lady Macbeth, she's not someone you'd typically expect to learn these lessons from, but she does wish for that connection and community, she just looks for it in one person and in power. And I think that's a very human experience to search for that connection and power outside of yourself. And she goes about it the wrong way. So does Macbeth. And like my mom mentioned, those two are held accountable for it. She, as much as she wishes, she could be powerful and non-emotional and have this kind of cold, protection from humanity, she doesn't. She falls, I don't want to say victim to humanity, but she falls into humanity just like everybody else. And those who love and those who fight for others and fight for what's right are successful in the end of the play, which I think is an important message here when you really pay attention. So I think a really fun connection here, at least I think it's fun, is uh, you two have been in this play before, but performing very different roles. Uh, Laura, you played Lady Macbeth in Capital Classics 2006 production of Macbeth, and Kira played one of the Macduff children. And in the 2023 production, Kira, you are now playing Lady Macbeth, like you just mentioned, and Laura is playing one of the three weird sisters. So can you talk about uh, your experiences? Let's start with Laura. Oh, it's just such a, a beautiful cycle of events for me, watching Kira build this character that is such a force of humanity and such a force of her times. And seeing Kira's journey and her connection to the character is, as it should be, very different from mine. And there's a lot of similarities. So I love watching it because I've always loved the character of Lady M. She's been one of my favorites. But after you do a show, it's over. You know, it kind of falls into your your own personal history and watching her go through it it triggers a lot of memories um but it's the passing of the baton too you know i've aged out of lady m and now i'm a wayward <laughs> sister and that's fun as well so kira's day will come as a witch <laughs> well kira i think your your mom just kind of predicted your future here but as lady <laughs> m what is your experience like and what what do you feel about this whole sort of cycle for you yeah, it definitely feels very cyclical. It feels very full circle, uh, a homecoming of sorts for me. Um, 
our original production of Macbeth was my first ever play. I think I was about seven years old and I wanted to get involved because I had grown up watching my parents do plays every summer. And it was the first time I was in a rehearsal room and I got to see my mom playing Lady Macbeth. And there was a lot I didn't understand about the play and the character, but I loved watching her. And as I've grown up, Lady M has definitely become a dream role of mine. And so now to be able to come home and do this with my father directing and my mother in the show with me um, as a wayward sister has been really exciting. And I feel like I have a lot of support and freedom to explore Lady Macbeth my way. Um, and again, in rehearsals, we have a lot of time to connect over the character. Our interpretations are very different and the productions are very different, but she's one of the only other people in that rehearsal room who's taken the steps to really understand Lady M as a character and really get into her mind and sympathize with her and create her version of her. And so we've had a lot of fun dissecting her as a character and kind of connecting over the fact that we've both had to go to these weird, dark places that not every character has to go. So it's nice to have that support. And uh, she's also helpful at learning my lines because she's still more than one. That's amazing. Um, and we've been talking drama. So if you want to join the conversation, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And talking about drama, I'm hoping Jackie Hubbard has made a dramatic return to our conversation. Jackie, are you there? Yes, I am. Yes, I don't she know what as long as they're not a sponsor, I'm going to blame Comcast. But <laughs> no. Well, it could not be a theater project if the, or a theater conversation if something like this didn't happen. So yeah, exactly. So exactly. we've just been having an amazing conversation with with Laura and Kira talking about different productions, interpretations, and sort of you know being in the modern times, and we're still talking about Shakespeare. And I want to ask you: Have you seen sort of? a wave of different kinds of creation coming out of the pandemic. You know, we left earlier talking about um, the different ways of, of how the pandemic has impacted theater. And so I wanted to sort of pick your brain on your experiences about, you know, have you seen sort of a, a different way that creativity is being used in the theater because of the pandemic? Sure. Well, a big um, thing that I have noticed with our theater, we have a Women Playwrights Festival every year. We open it for um, uh, submissions in February, and we cut it off at 200 because, frankly, that's as many as we can read. And uh, usually it, we close the competition in June, and we had to shut it down the end of March because we reached 200 by March. And I would say easily another 200 were, were coming in. People have been writing, 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 and um, especially women so that was very um, interesting for us. We have our festival in October, and it sparked a conversation in the organization as, as how, do, how we feature this new works. Because it, for us, main stage productions are always productions that bring in the largest crowd. That's just the nature of running an organization and need to make it financially, but what do we do with all this new work? So I think that's something you're going to be seeing more of from us. We have started a play reading series uh, for older writers. In the summer, we're featuring new plays by older writers because we have a huge older community, and uh, that's been really interesting. So yeah, that is number one that 
springs to mind for me. And of course, the conversations that started during the pandemic on how we um, capture the um, this creativity and the, from and the inclusivity that we need now to to be focusing on as we move forward with productions. So um, I think you'll see a change in programming in a lot of organizations that, you know, we need to keep our anchor shows that our audiences know and love and make them trust us to come and see new work. You know, you have to build their trust first and then you can introduce them to perhaps other stories that they might like to listen to and stories that they can connect with, even though they are perhaps not stories they're familiar with. And I think having a lot of new work coming out seems like a good problem to have in, in this space, I'm thinking. It is. It is. It's, it is guiding the audiences to want to come and see it. You know, audiences are, they like stuff they know. So we have to get them in with stuff they know and then say, please trust us, you're going to like this. And, and so that's where we are right now. And with a lot of uh, stories that people are familiar with, we were just talking about Macbeth and would mm-hmm. love to ask you too about The Sound of Music. Um, it's also a very powerful music musical and something that's familiar with a lot of people. So, you know, why Sound of Music? Well, to be honest, I tried to get the rights for The Sound of Music 12 years ago. So this has been an ongoing, uh, almost a joke in our season because it's always on there. And then being a small theater, it was always impossible to get the rights. And it's interesting that it came. We finally got them this year. Um, The war in Ukraine has especially affected um, the actors a lot, as we talked about going through this show, and also you know, the political situation in this country. Um, It takes on a very different tone depending upon when you do it in history, what is going on in the world. Um, It has, uh, it is a musical that resonates across the ages. You know, people my age, we grew up with it on TV every year, but people younger than me know it because it was always on it around Easter time or Christmas time. And um, I find grandparents bringing their grandchildren. So it has um, an appeal across the ages. Uh, I noticed we've only had two previews. We opened tonight. But people sing along with it because they know those songs. And it's they forget the storyline, but they know the music. And so the music brings them in. And then they get to watch a story that maybe they'd forgotten all the elements of. Um, So I'm very excited to see how this show goes, you know, how audiences respond. From the first two previews, they've responded very positively. Well, I think it's really interesting because I feel like um, right up there with Shakespeare, I feel like Sound of Music is one of those musicals that I I also see it as a ubiquitous show that constantly on programs and and concert halls that are continuing to to perform them. And so while you know we we're talking about things that have been been around for a while, but there are a lot of changes too within the theater spaces, especially with a pandemic, which spotlighted a lot of issues. You know, have you mm-hmm. have you seen equity and diversity becoming a bigger part of the mission in theater spaces, or you know, what was your experience like with that, and how is that sure. you know continuing to happen? Well, I think the theater is always ahead 
on any movement uh, about, you know, liberal values, progressive values. We're we're always ahead of the curve, uh, and the audience comes along with you. So, um, yes, uh, definitely the Actors' Union itself has become very proactive in trying to make sure that theatres are more accessible uh, for actors of colour, actors with mobility issues. And we've always tried to make this very much a part of our programming. But um, one of the things that did become uh, for in the four of our thinking was we are a very old theater. We are a hundred and ooh, 12 years old, I think now. And the stage is probably almost that age. So we know we need to replace it. And um, the theater is accessible to the audience. It is not hugely accessible for actors. So in designing, redesigning the new space, that has become something that, um, you know, we need to take into consideration. And actors, on the whole, if they want to do a role, a role and they have problems, they will make it work. They will crawl upstairs to get on that stage. We don't want them doing that. We want to make sure that our space is um, an accessible space for, for everyone. Right, unless the character is supposed to be crawling, you should probably not do that. <laughs> you should probably not do that, but I'll tell you they do. And especially older actors who are waiting for a hip replacement and tell you, not a problem, we can walk up these stairs to the stage. Yeah, <laughs> someone should think. probably be there to say no. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, and I think and, when, we, when we're thinking about accessibility, we, we talk more about the audience, like you say. Yeah. We don't really think about the actual workers and performance both on and off the, sca- the stage. So that's what right. do those conversations look like in your theater? Like, what do you have to do in order to make that space more accessible for your workers and performers? Well, number one, we have to raise some money to make it more accessible. That's the number one. This Our theater was not built with that in mind. It was built as a community hall for factory workers. Um, so nobody ever thought about going... Well, there wasn't much of a basement, actually. It was a, you know, a very small waterlogged little place with bathrooms. And we've been working on it consistently since 2000. But as it was an historic building, we, did, we didn't have to do anything. A, we couldn't have done in 2000. We didn't have the money. Um, so we were allowed to just keep going the way we were. But looking for funding going forward, that is a big part of the conversation is if we're going to do this, let's do it properly. And of course, not only the physical work is very demanding, but working those long hours, working in those spaces, especially leading up to opening night, I imagine it's very stressful. And so has mental health and thinking about the work-life balance been a part of the conversation that you're having at your theater? Are those connected? Um, Well, I think that was, That happened during the pandemic. I mean, everybody stopped and said, wait a minute, how have we been working? Has our, is it not sustainable the way that we have worked? We lost a lot of people during the pandemic who found other jobs because we were closed for so long. So we have a smaller and maybe more efficient organization, but uh, we have changed. We have changed our rehearsal hours to be more manageable. We don't have the real long hours building sets. Crews used to work around the clock. Um, We've cut back on that. We have insisted on, you know, no more of these 
12, 14-hour days. We don't do that anymore. And I'm happy to tell an audience during a preview, um, we have, you know, the set's not complete. There's going to be something here and something here. You're just not going to see it tonight because it's more important that we don't lose people. Um, so uh, that has been a part of the discussion. And with the union, too, the union used to allow... Uh, 10 hours out of 12 for tech rehearsals, and now we do 8 out of 10, which is more human, and we take a break in the middle, and people eat and have a nap. So we're not, we're much more aware of the needs of the actors and the staff, and we're trying to make it a more um, human place for people to work. Well, we are very much looking forward to seeing all of your all of your upcoming shows. So uh, break a leg there. You've been listening you. to Jackie Hubbard. She's the artistic director of the Ivoryton Playhouse. And Laura and Kira Sheehan, they are performers with Capital Classics Theatre Company in Hartford. Thank you all so much for your time today and sharing your stories with us. Thank you so much Thank for you. having us on. And you can, you. you can find more information on these performances on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Coming up next, a theater troupe that's focused on making their space not just accessible to audiences, but for their performers and workers as well. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're checking in with Connecticut theaters this hour, and now we're joined by Keely Basin Knudsen. She's the artistic director and co-founder of Legacy Theater in Brantford, Connecticut, and Wheel Life Theater Troupe. Welcome to the show, Keely. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, you can also give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Keely, we are here to talk about a slightly different kind of theater troupe. Can you talk to us about the origins of Wheel Life Theater Troupe? Yes. So, as you mentioned, I'm the artistic director of Legacy Theater, and we have this, you know, beautiful, small, historic venue in Branford in Stony Creek. And while we were in the midst of fundraising to purchase it and then, of course, to bring it up to code, which meant, you know, needing to gut it and come up with a, a new idea for the plan on the interior, uh, we did shows. We did shows for fundraising and, you know, of course, spent spent that decade uh, uh, performing just in not in a venue. And one of the opportunities that came from that was that we, we had a a few people in the community that um, used wheelchairs or crutches or uh, walkers to get around and were very interested in acting and, and storytelling in that way. And um, and so we we banded together and we formed the Wheel Life Theater Troops. It's W-H-E-E-L, Wheel Life Theater Troop. Uh, for those that ambulate using assisted devices in some way um, or wheelchairs, and uh, so that became just kind of organically our outreach group through Legacy Theater. So Legacy is a professional rep repertory company, but 
we um, we have this outreach group called the We Life Theater Troupe. And um, so consequently, as we were building this theater and creating the plans for the um, you know interior, it became very important to us to be able to make sure that our performers and our techies, if they were differently abled, would be able to access the technical booth or access the stage uh, with no problem. Um, so we set to work in the designs, making sure that the stage space was the same height as the lobby space, that when you come in, there's there's no real step to get on stage. Um, and then also we have a, a lift in the lobby that's specifically for the tech booth so that Somebody who's working um, lights or sound, if they happen to be differently abled, can take that lift upstairs and then go into the tech booth and that there's a good turning radius for a wheelchair, et cetera. And um, it's a really unique scenario because, um, as Jackie was saying, these historic theaters, it's just not something that was on anybody's radar um, when we were building buildings you know, 100 years ago. Um, and this building was no exception to that. It's just that we were in a unique position where we had to kind of gut the interior and restart the plans inside in order to uh, operate um, as a theater within the shell of an historic theater uh, here in Stony Creek. Um, so we were able to create this accessible theater, um, you know, at, at this time within something that's historic. So I feel very grateful that we had that opportunity and that we, you know, were we're kind of already geared towards uh, performers in in that regard and making it an accessible space. Right. And so you were saying, and we were talking with Jackie Hubbard, who's the artistic director for the Ivory Ten Playhouse. And she mentioned that the pandemic really raised these questions and and issues. And and just as you were saying now too, with historical spaces, they were not built with the with ADA in mind. They were not built with accessibility for workers in mind. And and from what she was saying and what you're saying just now too is clearly there are a lot of challenges to to make the theater more accessible. So what would you was there something that surprised you? Was it easy to do to get, you know, to make the space more accessible? Or what were the challenges like for you? Well, Easy is interesting word. <laughs> yes, it is. The um so so we we were raising money for this capital campaign to restore this theater. And so within that, and it goes along with the pandemic needs as well, within that, we needed to have the particular HVAC system, you know, the MERV 13 that would make it possible for um, audiences to even be in here safely, you know, during the pandemic. And uh, so, so the attributes needed for this theater to be accessible to performers and technicians and for audiences and creatives to safely be here for um you know COVID-19 reasons, we were able to, because we were, you know, we had a clean slate um, with our building plans, we were able to incorporate all of that within the capital campaign. So again, we were just very, very fortunate to be able to, you know, re-envision this space at a time that we were already ra raising money and likely would have had to raise a similar amount, regardless of um, if we had included those two very important things. So uh, the, you know, it was it was a very welcome challenge um, and something that, you know, I I happen to be, you know, an artistic director, but I also happen to be the mother of five glorious children. And one of them happens to be uh, in a wheelchair. And so in any space that I enter that just because, you know, this is a whole new world for me these past 12 years, she's 12, um, is 
kind of, okay, is this, can we go into this building? Can she safely go in? Can she turn around? Can she get what she needs to get done, done? Um, and, and a lot of cases it's, it's no, you know, just, just because that's the way buildings have been built um, or there's weird kind of makeshift accommodations. And so I glory in the fact that we've created not only uh, a theater troupe for folks that would like to, you know, act and perform, but uh, wouldn't necessarily be seen uh, able to do certain roles and we make it happen. Um, and then also a space where that can that can happen in a beautiful, restored, you know, regional theater here in Connecticut. Um, so yeah, it 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 because of my unique circumstance as an artistic director and a mother of of a, a daughter who who uses a wheelchair, uh, it was it was I guess quote unquote easy <laughs> to to look at the plans and say. Mm, where can we do this better? How can we how can we serve so that, you know, if someone like my daughter wanted to perform, <laughs> I could only be so lucky, um, you know, how how could we make it uh, possible? Right. Certainly not easy, but definitely glorious, I'm thinking, you know, especially by the way you're describing it. And, you know, with, with good infrastructure, you're going to want to have performers, right, in the theater. And we have seen characters with various disabilities, and usually actors with disabilities are restricted to those roles. And I feel like we're we're in a better space now where we're kind of thinking beyond that. But how do we break out of that mold? Are you seeing us uh, sort of breaking that barrier apart? You know, I look at Ali Stroker's career and I, I, I'm I, just amazed by it. So she, you know, one of her first Broadway roles was in Spring Awakening, which was a presentation on Broadway of this really cool musical that was edgy and kind of an everyman musical, but um, was told with the aid of those that had varying disabilities, and she in a wheelchair was one of them. Um, now that's that's one way to attack it. But then she was cast on Broadway as you know Ado Annie, the kind of you know sex pot in Oklahoma, and uh, and it was you know she 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 won a Tony Award for that role in the midst of other actors that were typical um, as opposed to her atypical casting. And, you know, it was a celebration of her sexuality, of her fabulous voice, of of um, breaking boundaries and limitations and what people would think what, you know, what is possible or not possible or how you envision a role. Um, and I, I thought that that was just kind of groundbreaking. So um, I very much applaud that, you know, and and as, you know, as an artistic director, constantly casting and constantly thinking of casting, it is, you know, it's a new paradigm in a lot of respects um, through through the pandemic and all that we've learned through the Black Lives Matter movement and how, you know, when we don't even realize that there's been a scrim over our thinking and then to kind of raise that curtain and say, wow, <laughs> you know, why am I not, why is my knee jerk not that I'm considering casting this type of person for this type of role? It's an exciting time in theater. And I think you know, as the others have said, it's a, a theater is an art form that embraces um, and is at the forefront of inclusion. And we're all about community. And so, you know, it just makes sense that that this is what's happening at this time. Well, I, I think we're excited to hear that you're excited because it is really an exciting time to be in. And, and I think what you were just saying with the casting and whatnot, it, it also serves as a reflection of the community, right? So how would you like to see theaters become more inclusive and to accommodate people with physical limitations? 
Well, it's interesting. And we're all, you know, we're all different <laughs> and we all have our own limitations, right? So I think what I've learned a lot from being the mother of my daughter, Winter, is that, you know, when when people use the word different, sometimes they use it in all caps as if someone is so different. But we are all, you know, we all have <laughs> all kinds of challenges within our own um you know, walk of life for lack of a better phrase. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a matter of coming to the table with whatever talent, whatever gifts you have, whatever way you want to share your own soul and your own experience, period. And when you bring that onto a stage, no matter what the package looks like, uh, externally, but if you're able to emote in a way that is, um, resonating with the audience, with me, that makes, you know, brings life to a character in a way that's exciting and engaging. That's really the bottom line. So, you know, it, it really comes down to talents and gifts and then how you're going to live out loud in that way. And I think if you're bold enough as a performer, uh, and confident enough to say, you know, this is me, this is what I have to give. And there's nobody else in the world that can do exactly what I do, period. Um, so I'm just going to go out there and, and try to seize every opportunity I can. Then you're giving the casting directors the opportunity to see that particular actor, you, in a different, you know, maybe bursting open some ways that we would have otherwise have cast something. Um, so I, I think it's an exciting time for everyone uh, to get out there and and to give it their all and to try and to create and uh, write or act or, you know, um, direct uh, regardless of whatever limiting beliefs they might have put upon themselves um, just because our our culture hasn't uh, yet adopted where they think they need to be. Well, thank you so much for giving us that very exciting conclusion to a very hopeful conversation I think we've been having today. Uh, you've been listening to Keely based in Knutson. She's the artistic director and co-founder of Legacy Theater in Branford, Connecticut, and Wheel Life Theater Troupe. Thank you so much, Keely, for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.